This week we're going to be getting back into The Great Escape, which is our study through the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 10 today. Um, in our last message, A Convenient Faith, we saw the mighty goddess Geb, who ruled the sky, completely fail the Egyptians as burning hail poured down from the sky, bringing apocalyptic destruction to every part of Egypt except for Goshen, where God's people lived. Upon seeing the devastating results of this plague, Pharaoh made a profession of faith to Moses about God and went as far as, he was, as, far as repenting of his sins and the sins of his countrymen in order to bring about an end of the destruction. Unfortunately, his profession was proven to be insincere and simply a matter of convenience in an effort to escape the consequences of his own prideful choices. As we continue this narrative in Exodus, we will see the, lamp, the, the Lord ramp up the pressure against Pharaoh and the Egyptian, Egyptian belief system as another God is targeted in our message today, which is titled, The Winds of Change. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for this opportunity to bring the word. And God, you know that uh, my feeling of inadequacy, Lord, is, is great. Uh, but Lord, I trust in you, and I trust in your spirit. And I would ask, Father, that you'll help me to get out of the way. Uh, help this not be a message from me, but Lord, a message from you, Father, through the word. And uh, God, we pray that your spirit will rest upon us. Lord, help our hearts and minds to be ready to receive what you have for us. Remove the human element, Lord, that you might shine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, like I said, Exodus chapter number 10, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. We understand that when it talks about him hardening his heart, what he's simply doing is he's allowing his natural aptitude towards anger and frustration and this hardness of his heart to not be affected. He's allowing it to stay there, that anger and rebellion. And one word I want you to, to, to take a, pay attention to in that verse number 1 is the word that that, okay? That, and you're going to understand There's a, what that word that is meaning. It's saying for a purpose, a purpose. Verse number two, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's sons what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs, which I have done among them, that, per, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. So we see here there's a purpose here. He says in the first verse, there's a purpose that I might show these signs before him, talking about Pharaoh. In the second verse, we see here it says, that thou may tellest in the ears of thy sons and thy sons' sons what things have wrought in Egypt. And also it says here, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Saying, look, each thing has a purpose and is instructive for us. Not only is it for the sake of the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. The story of these events and God's sovereignty will be shared throughout all of human history. These stories have been told again and again. In studying the Bible, we're going to realize that there is a historic component to every part of the scripture as you read it. Now, at the same time, there's also a devotional aspect of the scripture as well. So there's a historic telling you these things actually took place. These were real people in real places. But also at the same time, there's a devotional aspect of it. How do I take this story of what I'm hearing and how do I apply it to my individual life? And then on top of that, even more miraculously, is there's an inspirational or a spiritual part to it as well, a doctrinal component that teaches us deep spiritual truths. You're not going to find a book like the Bible anywhere else in existence. It is supernatural. It is special. There's nothing else like it in existence anywhere, no matter how great the author may be. Literally over three different continents, over 40 different people, 66 books, all cohesively working together over literally over a thousand years written together. This supernatural book is like none other. Though it appears to be, to some folks, impossible to discern or impossible to understand, there is a, there is a reason why that's true, okay? And I'm going to give you a little bit of verse, a little bit of scripture to prove it. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, verses 9 through 14 says this, 
But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Many people believe that is a verse talking about heaven. In reality, it's not talking about heaven. It's not talking about that at all. It's actually talking about the wisdom of the scripture and the mysteries God has for us in them. Verse number 10, but God hath revealed them to unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 11, for what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Look, who knows, who really knows us except for us, right? No one else can be inside of us and see our hearts. Only we can. That we might know the things that are, no, uh, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. So we can't understand God, but the spirit of God understands God, right? And can discern it for us. Verse number 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God, right? And it says here, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Many times people go, I don't understand the Bible, I don't understand the Bible, and they want to read all these commentaries. Not, nothing, nothing's wrong with commentaries per se, but the best authority on the Bible is the Bible. Find scripture, use the scripture to prove the scripture. It's a simple principle that we see here comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. Verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Meaning that natural man, meaning someone who is not born again, has not received the spirit of God, does not have that discernment of the spirit helping them to understand. It says it is foolish in him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So you've got all these people that are scholars reading the Bible that are lost people. And guess what? They'll write all kinds of stuff about what the Bible is actually saying. But unless you have the Spirit of God revealing you that truth, you can't truly understand the truth of the Word of God. As every event that has taken place in Egypt has a purpose, so does every word in the Holy Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, "This all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Look at this, verse number 17, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished with all good works. It talks about using the word perfect. That What that means is spiritually mature. There is no one that's perfect except for Christ who ever walked the earth. But that term there, used perfect, is an old English way of talking about maturity. Verse number three, and Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Verse 4, Else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast. Now I didn't really know necessarily what a locust was. That's a locust. That thing is nasty, man. They're gross. And the more you, the more you see, the more you're going to see. we got another picture. This gives you an idea how big they are. Youch, right? That's like as long as your finger, the big old whatever grasshopper looking thing, right? So they're, they're, they're kind of a, a scary bunch, right? The plague of locusts will be discrediting several Egyptian gods. The first being a minor god named Serapia. Serapia was supposed to protect the Egyptians from locusts. But there's another god that we're going to notice in a few minutes that is an even greater significance. Because remember what's happening through these ten plagues. God is discrediting the Egyptians. He's discrediting their entire belief system. Each one of these ones, we've watched systematically how God has torn down their belief system and revealing his strength and power over nature, the world, and all things. Verse number five. 
and they shall cover the face of the earth. Not only cannot, uh, not, not one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth. Unto, it says, unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. Look at this picture. Yummy. All over everything, man. I'm talking clustered over it all, eating everything. These locusts will utterly bring utter decimation and destruction of all vegetation left in Egypt, leaving them in a state of desperation and starvation. Verse 6. And they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy their father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. Now notice he makes this statement, right? He says, look, nothing like this has ever been seen before. And that's almost like he does a little mic drop moment, right? He basically says what he's going to say and he's like, <clears throat> just walks on out, right? <laughs> He says, look, man, be ready, buddy, because it's coming. You want to see God's power. It's coming. It's coming like something you never, ever witnessed or seen before. Get ready. Buckle up, right? Now, notice this. Verse number 7. And Pharaoh's servant said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men, let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? Note, look, check this out. Now, these are his servants, it says. These aren't his advisors. These are his servants. Desperation will give people a little bit of courage sometimes, right? You reach a point and you go, look, man, I got nothing to lose. Man, look, if you looked outside, this place is a just absolute mess. This place is a wreck. Hey, hey, Pharaoh, have you paid attention? Look out the window. This reality check is from his servants causes Pharaoh to reevaluate. Verse number eight. Immediately, it says here, and Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh. And he said unto them, go serve the Lord your God and who are they that shall go? Who are you taking with you? Now, even though Pharaoh is in no position to negotiate, he still wants things his way. Arrogance in this man, his boldness. Okay? So this, uh, we don't know what, what his motivation was, if it was fear, maybe about losing control of these individuals, or it's maybe a personal pride, but for whatever reason, Pharaoh, we can see here, his will is not quite broken. Verse number 9 says here, and Moses said, we will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go. For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. We're all going to go. Everybody, everything, we're going to get out of here, every one of us. Notice how specific he is in this description. He doesn't want to be anything misunderstood. We're all going to go. This is our intention. Verse number 10, and he, meaning Pharaoh, said unto them, let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. What are you basically saying this? He said, what, what are you trying to do to me? Verse number 11. Not so. Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord that ye desire. That, they said, for that ye desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Basically what he's saying is like, look, from what I understood, you were just taking the men. Now you want to take everybody? Uh, I'll let the men go. That's it. Get these guys out of here. Right? Shut them out the door. So we notice here, again, he wants things under his control. The adult men can go and the women and the children are to stay here. Now we remember Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. Okay? He's a picture of Satan. We know that Egypt is a picture of the world. We know that the Israelites are a picture of the individual believer. Right. So now we see this picture of Satan, Pharaoh, having a stronghold and not willing to let go of the next generation. Holding on to those kids, unwilling to let them go. We see his desire to control their potential. Yes. This has never been more true than it is today. 
When we're looking at the next generation, we can see the stranglehold that he has on young people. The enemy is active. We've allowed him into our homes through the media, into our culture through the church remaining silent, through our schools removing God, and in our government and the whole belief of separation of church and state. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution, Constitution prevents the government from making laws which respect an establishment of a religion, prohibit the free exercise of religion, or abridge the freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the right to peaceably assemble, or the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. So the First Amendment was established to protect the church from governmental interference, okay? A freedom of religion, right? This is what's, and understand that concept of freedom of religion on the planet Earth was unheard of, absolutely unheard of, revolutionary. The fact that our government was established upon biblical principles is impossible to die unless you choose to ignore our history. The angle that the enemy is taking right now is trying to rewrite history to change the truth of who we really are and attack religious freedom at its core. Not only do the founding documents of our country recognize the importance of God in the process of governing, but the very monuments in the capital of our nation display it all over the place. Guess what? When you go to the Supreme Court, guess who is posi- who's, who's in the statue, is, is in, is a, what do you call it, uh, a relief, right? Moses is sitting in a seat holding the Ten Commandments as you go in to the Supreme Court. Amazing. Yet they want to deny that it's a truth. Our very first president, George Washington, made it clear in his prayer for America. This is our very first president. This is his words. Almighty God, we make our earnest prayer that thou wilt keep the United States in thy holy protection, that thou wilt incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government and entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another and for their fellow citizens of the United States at large. And finally, that thou wilt most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to justice, to love mercy, and to, do de- and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the, spe- which were the, spe- were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion, and without a humble limit- imitation of whose example in these things we can never hope to be a happy nation, grant our supplication, we beseech thee, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's our very first president. That's the where we started. Satan has a firm grasp on the next generation, and he's holding tight because he wants their potential, just like Pharaoh saw the potential in the Israelites. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and, every er- and, and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod, over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. Okay? One thing that I found out, initially when I was doing the study for this message, I really thought I was supposed to focus my attention on the locusts. So I was reading all kinds of things about locusts, what they do and how they breed and all this kind of stuff like that. I know a lot about locusts if you want to talk about it after church. <laughs> Turns out, <laughs> locusts is not really where we're supposed to be focused on. But what I did find out in studying locusts is the fact that locusts don't choose their destination or their direction. They are directed by the wind. The wind is what chooses their destination and their direction. Now we see in our scripture that God is very specific in pointing out what kind of wind it is. It says it is an east wind, an east wind, okay? Remember, there's another God that's going to be discredited in this story. 
And that god is God's name is Shu, S-H-U. And he was the Egyptian god of the air and the wind. I have an image of him. This is him over here. Doesn't look like a him, but it's a him. That's him. That's Shu, okay? So he is, has power over the wind and the air. From the Egyptian perspective, Shu is betraying them by carrying the horde of destruction into their land, and Serapia is allowing the locusts to land in Egypt. We see in our scripture that God is very specific in letting us know that it is, like I said, an east wind. And let's examine wind in the Bible. Let's look at that from a biblical perspective. Revelation 7, 1 says this, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So we know there will be a north, a south, an east, and a westerly wind, okay? A north wind, from a biblical perspective, is seen four times in the scriptures, and it represents God's majesty. South wind, which is seen seven times in the scripture, represents comfort and rest. The west wind, which we actually only see in this scripture here, is, going to, is a representation of restoration. And the east wind, which shows up 21 times in the Bible, represents judgment. Judgment. Now, Look at this. We see this first. We see the east wind in Genesis 41, right? Pharaoh has a dream, which Joseph's going to interpret. And it talks about the seven years of famine. And guess which way that, sam that famine is blown in by the east wind. We see it three times in the book of Job. We see it twice in Psalms. We see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, and Habakkuk, every time pointing to judgment. Now, we can certainly see judgments coming down upon the Egyptians through the horrific locusts. Now, verse 14, And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they before them, were there no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. And we've got a little video clip we're going to show you. This was in Russia. Yeah. Now, it says that nothing like this has ever happened before and nothing ever since. So this is going to be minimal in comparison to what they would have been experiencing. They're taking nets and catching them because they're so thick. There's estimated when, right now when they talk about they go through the Middle East, they estimate between two and three billion locusts can be in a swarm at a time. That's current day, right? So this is saying in this, in this, in this scripture, it's telling us like nothing like this has ever happened before and nothing ever since. That means if we're talking about three billion in a swarm, we could be talking about 10 or 20 billion swarms of these things coming down upon the earth. And they are so ravenous with what they'll eat. It talks about the fact that people nowadays, they have to keep, make sure to keep their windows closed because if they get into your home, they will eat your wooden furniture. They devastate everything they come in contact with. Is anybody else feeling kind of woo? <laughs> I promise we have a fumigator that comes in here. You're all safe. Well, at least I think he comes. I don't know. Maybe not. Um, but bottom line is, we understand that it's, this, is, this is a scary thing. They're witnessing, they're seeing this come. For they covered the face of the, earth, of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Take a look at this picture. This gives you an idea of how close they get on the ground. They're literally just coating the ground. And again, they blow in and they blow out, controlled by the wind. God specifically had them land right where they are. 
We saw in Exodus verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 31, that the flax and the barley, remember? Now, the flax and the barley, barley was for raising, for making beer, right? It was a thing of comfort for them. And also, the flax was used for making clothing. So the Egyptians, when they had those two, those two other crops were wiped out, God was showing mercy because they weren't food crops, okay? But now, food crops are going to be affected. Nexus 9.32, it says, The Lord mercifully spared the food crops of the wheat and the rye, but now the wheat and the rye, they're going to be destroyed. Now God lifts his, his hand of mercy off of the Egyptians as every plant, every herb, every tree, and every bush is utterly destroyed. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. Notice it says, in haste. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. This is the first time he ever actually identifies the fact that Moses isn't even a part of this thing. He's always using him as a way to get to God, but now he actually becomes personal and actually addresses Moses. For Pharaoh, we see that his decision to make amends is made in haste and under duress, which are not usually signs of a true change of heart. Unfortunately, many times people have a tendency whenever they're in a tough spot to say what they need to say, and we noticed that when we looked in our message last time, which was the convenient faith, right? Moses found himself in a tough spot, and he said, I'll just say what I need to say, do what I need to do, and he had faith that was insincere and not one that truly is saving faith, and we talked about the difference between saving faith and true faith, right? And the whole, whole point is God is simply saying, look, you know, he's trying to break through, but at the same time, there's a purpose to each part of this. There's even a purpose to his hard-heartedness. Now, God, he says here, uh, but the rest of us uh, recognize the fact that now he does this. Yes, he does what he's supposed to do and the fact that he does go and he does address and, and ask for forgiveness or ask to, to make things right. And that, that's a, a, a good scriptural example that we should follow, even though his is done not in sincerity. But that's how we're supposed to handle ourselves. If I've got a wrong with someone or if I've wronged someone or if I've done something that hurt someone, I'm supposed to go and address it to them and try to make things right, Okay. Now, in Scripture, it tells us how we're supposed to do this and how we follow this. In Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, For if ye forgive them their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we're to seek forgiveness from our brother or sister, and then in doing so, it says that we will receive forgiveness from God. In fact, we're not even supposed to approach God if I have an unresolved issue with someone, I'm not even supposed to go even before God until I make that thing right. In Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24, it says this, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, if you're coming with an offering to God, and there rememberest that thy brother hath awed against thee, you remember you got a problem between you and somebody else, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Many of us have unresolved issues in our lives, right? And it comes down to a word called forgiveness. Forgiveness, right? We've got to be willing to forgive people. Whether they ask for it or not does not matter. It's not relevant, right? Because the forgiveness is for us, right? You've all heard the old adage, you know, forgiveness, uh, uh, bitterness, right? That's a poison that we drink to kill somebody else. Right? People walk around with this hate inside of them and this bitterness within them, and they're every day, I'll get back at them. And, oh, yeah, yeah, they wave to me. I'm not waving to them. I'm turning my shoulder to them. Yeah, right? And we do all these things thinking somehow we're affecting them, but in reality, we're the ones that are being hurt by it. And these are the things that we have got to let go. And so many times we think, well, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. It does not matter if they deserve it. It is irrelevant if they deserve it. Your job is to forgive. We're going to look at that a little bit deeper as we go forward. Verse number 17. 
Now therefore, forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Pharaoh admits his fault and then actually asks for forgiveness. Now, after asking for forgiveness, look at this. He actually is seeking mercy, right? As followers of Christ, you and I are not judges of humanity. No matter what you may believe, you are not a judge. I'm not a judge. It's not our place. God says, judge not lest ye be judged. And then he actually warns us and says, by the same measure, be careful. Be careful not to be one that go around judging people. Now, can I judge if someone's doing right or wrong? Absolutely. But do I judge the humanity of that person? No, that's not my role. My role is to love them. I'm supposed to care for them. Moses honors Pharaoh's request, even though his track record over the last seven plagues has revealed his insincerity. It's not our place to judge if someone's request is real. Someone asks you for forgiveness, and man, they don't even mean it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You are required to do what God calls you to do, right? We're not required to simply do what we think is fair. We're supposed to follow what the Lord establishes for us. Matthew 18, 21 and 22 says this, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Who's good at math? What is that? 490 times again and again and again, even though obviously they don't mean it. They haven't changed their ways. They continue down that path of rebellion. Verse 18, and went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. Moses faithfully shows mercy and calls out to God on Pharaoh's behalf. Now, how many of us have ever prayed for our enemies? I don't mean the kind of prayer where it's like, God, strike them down. <laughs> Lightning bolt about 3 o'clock when you come out from the work, that'd be great. Just take care of them. Just go ahead and get rid of them for me. That's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a kind of prayer where you're praying for God to show mercy, for God to care for them, to God to provide for them. That's a tough thing. When it says enemy, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody that's on a battlefield, your enemy. That can mean someone in your own home. That can mean your spouse, Right? You ever have something going on between you and your spouse or your brother or sister and it's just some little unsaid thing and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, just leave your toothpaste out. Great. Yeah, great. Just leave it out. Yeah, I'll put it away. That's my job. I'm supposed to clean up after you. Is that what it is? Silly little things like that. We'll walk around carrying this stuff inside of us, right? And instead of getting worked up over our flesh, which is not, I'm telling you, I've told you guys in the past, flesh Wonderful. Your emotions, wonderful passengers. Never should be in the driver's seat of your life, ever. Your emotions should always be passengers. God should be in the driver's seat of your life. What happens is most of us, we put God in the back seat or in the trunk of the car. We put our emotions in the driver's seat. We end up in the ditch and we're like, well, how'd that happen? What in the world? How'd I hit a tree? That doesn't make any sense. Yet we're living our lives. We don't stop and think. We don't stop and pray. We don't forgive. We react, react, react. And then we look back and go, you know, I should have done that differently. Mm. In retrospect, that was not the way to handle that. Should have probably maybe been nicer than that. That probably wasn't what to say. I don't think throwing that was a good idea. Right? But who's been there? Man, I'm telling you what, it's hard. We live in flesh, dude. This thing is a tough thing to fight every single day. And, the, and Satan knows how to lure this thing into action, buddy. He knows how to get this flesh fired up, man. Oh, I know just what's going to work. Yeah, a little disrespect. That'll get him on the edge. 
Yep, 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 a little just that. That'll, that'll, get them, that'll get them right where they need to be. And then I'll, yeah, and I'll take them here. That'll, boom. We'll see the explosion then. And then what we have to do is we have to go back and make things right with God, make things right with them. What if we had a heart of forgiveness right up front? Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says this. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is a person who's not just being mean to you. They're going out of their way to hurt you. And it's saying, I'm supposed to be praying for them. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. What he's saying there is, you know what? God loves them all the same. The evil and the good. He rises the sun. He brings the rain because he cares for them. God loves all humanity. He's not picking and choosing who he wants to survive and who he wants to, for destruction. God loves us all and wants all of us to come to God. Every single one of us. But have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's heart is for humanity. Does that mean people's are the humanity's hearts for God? No. Our natural tendency is rebellion. We're born into rebellion. Small children naturally lie by nature. That's, that's just what happens, right? Something, something's broken. You hear something shatter on the floor, and you walk in the room, and your three-year-old's standing there going, it was me. I did that. I know I wasn't supposed to be in the counter. I just wanted a cookie, and I just had to do it. I'm ready to take my punishment, whatever it is. Is that what usually happens? No, you come in the room, and they're like, what happened? I don't know. What's on the floor? I don't know. Did you go in the cabinet and pull out that candy jar? No. But sweetheart, you're in here by yourself. Um, um, a squirrel came in the window. He wanted a cookie and I told him not to. But he just broke it around the floor. Is that closer to reality? Yeah. They're not going to be honest because their nature is to do wrong. And that's what's, that's, you and I struggle with that every single day. Verse 19. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coast of Egypt. Do we remember what the west wind represented? Restoration. Restoration. East wind brings destruction, judgment, West wind moves it out. And isn't it neat that it blows them into the Red Sea, right? The Red Sea. Now, this is going to be a place where the children of Israel are going to experience an amazing, unbelievable miracle, and in doing so, restore and strengthen their faith in God Almighty. So everything happens for a purpose, a place of restoration. Verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. The Lord allows the same rebellious spirit to remain strong in Pharaoh. Rebellion runs deep in humanity. In fact, there are those in this world that would rather be right than anything else. No matter the circumstances, no matter the evidence to the contrary, they will argue their point and they will die on that hill to prove that they are right. does not matter what reality says at all. We all know people like this. That's just their mindset. They will not give in. It's driven by pride, even to their own destruction, like Pharaoh. While at the same time, there are those that are so blinded by their positive results or worldly success that they don't see anyone else, let alone God. 
Back in verses 1 and 2, right? There was a word I asked you to point the, to focus on, which was that. 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 Meaning purpose, right? Meaning purpose. God allows the east wind to come for a purpose. In these verses, each one of these parts is saying purpose. Look at the verse. Um, look at that same. Look at this verse that I'm going to read to you right here in Hosea 13, 15. I want you to look at it with the mindset of there's a purpose, right? Verse 15, Hosea 15, 13, 15. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. If you think about the fact that if God has a purpose and that west, that east wind is coming, it says here, though he be fruitful among his brethren, even though the world says, man, look at your success. Look at how successful you are. Look at your life, man. You've got it made, man. You've got the Facebook life. You've got the car. you get the house. You've got the family. I mean, dude, that picture, you guys on the mountainside is beautiful, unbelievable. Your kids are perfect, incredible. And God says, you know what? You think that's a truth, but in reality, I'm going to allow things to come into your life. And what we find in Hosea 14 is guess what it's all about? restoring. But it took a purpose. They had to be brought to a certain point in time and face a reality in order to understand that they needed God. As Christians, there may be times in our lives because of stubbornness, success, apathy, rebellion, or even laziness in our lives, right? That will allow God to send an east wind to blow into our lives. It's not to hurt us. God does not want to hurt us. God wants to help us. He's trying to get us back on track. When we find ourselves in those places, we're not where we're supposed to be. We're not fruitful for the kingdom of God. Remember, this life's not about us. It's about Him. If my life is to bring glory to God and I live a life that's all about me, I'm receiving glory. But what if my life was rearranged? And what if I had a focus where my life was all oriented towards giving God glory? What if I could live that life? Guess what? God will fulfill you like you've never imagined. Again, it's not to hurt us. It's because he loves us. God allows the east wind to come that the west wind might have an opportunity to blow restoration into our lives, reminding us of whose we are and reuniting, reuniting us with our Father. What happens when the world gets in our lives and we fall into our emotions and we fall into our own personal success is we become divided from God. It puts a separation between us. And the closeness that maybe at one time we had as Christians becomes distant. Not because God walked away. God never, if this is God, if, this, is this, if he's this pulpit, God stays steady as a rock. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He'll always be there. But yet I, because of my life, I'm going to focus all my attention on my new job. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to focus on, on, on having the, the, the perfect wardrobe. I'm going to focus on having all the right friends. You know, I'm going to focus on all these things. And as we do this, I'm not working on my relationship with God. He has not moved, yet I have gotten further and further and further away. And there are Christians that have gotten so far from God that if you ask them if they're saved, they go, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know. I haven't talked to God in years. I haven't been in church in years. How about reading your Bible? Man, I don't pick that thing up. It just makes me feel bad. Right? It's for reproof, for correction. Right? God's whole purpose is not to hurt us. It's not to take us on a path that's not fruitful. He's trying to take us to the very best path, the path that will help us to live for him, which will fill us like nothing else. Because when we fill ourselves with the things of this world,
world, we leave ourselves empty, 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 unsatisfied and frustrated. And God's saying, look, you know what? Surrender that garbage, set it aside, fall in love with me, and just watch what happens. Watch what happens. You'll be happier than you've ever been. Every wind, good and bad, has a purpose. So instead of cursing the east wind as we feel it approaching, let's realize that it has come in order to give opportunity for the west wind to give us what we so desperately need. Our job is to trust God. When we look around in our lives and we start to see the trees begin to sway, we pay attention to where that wind's coming from, from the east, and we feel the breeze on our face, instead of becoming frustrated or angry, what if we embraced it and said, you know what, this wind has got to come. And when this wind of judgment comes out of my life and it straightens me out, it helps me reevaluate who I am, and then that west wind comes and brings restoration in my relationship with God. Remember, God has a purpose for every wind, good and bad. And as you're going through life and you're facing tribulations and you're facing the trials of this life, God's got a purpose for every single one of them. And it's all in the end game. What he's trying to accomplish is to draw you closer to him, to draw us closer to him, that we might fall in love with him like he created us to do. He loves us passionately and he wants us to love him. Passionately. Because that's where true joy will be found. No matter what this world tells you, no matter what Satan lies to us, and all the garbage he lures before us, when media and our, your, your phone is just filled with garbage. Garbage. So many things that you think are fulfilling, but they're not. You ever wanted a new car, and you finally get that new car. Five years down the road, you look at it sitting out in the parking lot, like, I ain't going to wash that thing. <sighs> I'm tired of that car. But at one point in time, that was all you needed to finally be happy. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. Fall in love with Jesus. and Because guess what? He's already fallen in love with you. So said in cursing the wind, let's embrace it as God embraces us through winds of change. Let's pray. Lord, um, I have lived a life with many winds, experienced many. I've seen the winds of the east. I've experienced the winds of the west from the north and the south. And I'm thankful, God, that you're in control and that, Lord, you allow these winds for a purpose. And, Lord, I pray that you help us as a body, help us as a people to recognize, God, that we have faith. Hold on to trusting that, God, you have a purpose for each thing. Instead of cursing the winds when they come, Lord, help us to represent and recognize what they are. And trust, God, that you have a purpose that you're going to work in our lives. And that one day, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not 10 years from now, but one day we'll recognize what it is you were doing. And, God, we know that it's always for our good. And, Lord, always for your glory. I pray that you help us as a body. Help us, Lord, to represent you in this world. Help us to help people to recognize the winds. And, God, as, as judgment comes, help us to ensure them and tell them, God, that there's a west wind that can follow to bring restoration. God, you are a God that loves us passionately. And I pray that you help us as a body, help us individually to love you passionately. Help it to shine out of our lives to those that we know, those that we care about. Help it to be reflected to our children, to our spouses, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Help us to be a bright light as darkness rests upon this earth. We know we are right now in the midst of a spiritual night. 
but there is a dawn coming when the Son of God shall return. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to point people to that day. Help us to live for you while we're here and help us to realize, God, that you have a greater purpose for the good and the bad. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I'd, honestly, I don't know about my relationship with God. Guys, 17 and a half years ago, I was lost. You didn't, I'd never heard that term before. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I realized the fact that on that day, 17 and a half years ago, when somebody asked me if I knew for sure I was on my way to heaven, that I did not know. I searched my heart and I was honest before God and I said, I do not know. But thank God they cared enough about me to open a Bible and show me that I could receive the greatest gift ever given, which is a relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. He offered his life, a sacrifice, a ransom for many that we might have a relationship with him. He paid the ultimate price so that we wouldn't have to pay it. If you've asked him in your heart at any point in time in your life and you truly meant it, you were sincere with that decision, guess what? He's with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That relationship is an eternal relationship. If you feel distant from him but you know you're saved, make things right. Go to him. Ask for forgiveness. Look at your life and get rid of this garbage that's messing up the relationship with God. But if you're here today and you say, you know what? I've never had that relationship. I may have been in church my whole life. I believe in God. Guess what? The devil believes in God. In the book of Job, he stands before him. It says the demons tremble in the presence of God. That does not make them his children. That only means that they believe in God. Bottom line is, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The grace of God reaches out into the hearts and lives of every man, woman, and child on this planet, and it comes down to us to make a choice. The Bible says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. A gift which costs the giver the ultimate price, but is free to the receiver. If you've never received that gift and you want to today, it's not a matter of a prayer, it's not a matter of a ceremony, it is a matter of a sincere heart broken before God asking Him to give you that gift. He's offering it from the cross. Father, He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When God looks at us, no matter where you are, if you're here in this room or if you're on the internet, wherever you are, if you want to receive Christ, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Again, it's not the words of the prayer that will do anything for you. It's the sincerity of your heart. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I want you to pray to God in your heart, in your mind. The words of this prayer, like I said, it's not the words. God's looking at your heart. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong for those that I've hurt, for the times I've hurt myself, and most importantly, all those times that I hurt you. I'm asking you to forgive me. And by faith, I'm asking you to come into my heart to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. I trust that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross, you rose on the third day, proving you were God. I'm asking you to save me. And I look forward to seeing you one day in heaven. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.